Welcome to Follow the Money Wall. I'm David Sloan and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. My guest today is Mitch Lukovics. Mitch is currently special assistant to the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. How you doing, Mitch? Never been better, David. Thank you. That's very good. So, you know, I've always felt the best place to begin a story is at the beginning. So I'd like to share with my listeners a little bit of your background. I know you are from Pennsylvania and you obviously played baseball. That was where you and I got together. You were my client and a very good one. I wish I had more Mitch Lukovics's in my client list. However, my listeners don't necessarily know so I'd like to get into that a little bit. Obviously, uh, like many people, you played ball from a very early age. Were you always a pitcher? Always a pitcher. Really? From little on. It just happened I could throw harder than most. And when you throw harder than most, that's where they put you. Uh-huh. And did you only pitch? No. You know, you pitch, play shortstop, maybe on occasion outfield. But, uh Yeah. Through, throughout uh, high school, you know, when you're in Little League and high school, teener league, Connie Mack, you always played two positions. Then when you got into college, you know, my first year at Penn State, we we hit, pitchers hit my first year, and right. then they got rid of it and had the designated hitter in my sophomore year. So say somewhere in 1974, you know, pitchers stopped hitting. But when you're a kid, you, you, you play multiple positions. Right. And, uh, you know what? I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was a lot of fun. Right. Before you got to Penn State, obviously, Pennsylvania has always been a hotbed of athletic talent. Did you specialize just in baseball or did you play other sports as well? I played three sports in high school, football, basketball, and baseball. And I got recruited, you know, D1, took uh, visits to West Virginia, Syracuse, North Carolina State, Indiana State, and I play with a great player. Mike Hartenstein played 13 years with the Bears. So, you know, my high school films got to be seen by a, a lot of co- colleges. And as a byproduct of that, you're talking football season 1970 now, you know, and, and we didn't go much from Bethlehem to Allentown, PA, let alone go to Syracuse or North Carolina State and Raleigh, North Carolina. So the only way I got seen was because of a great player on my team that uh, my films got viewed by a lot of different colleges. What position did you play in football? Well, I was a running back, and then I was a defensive end. My junior year, being a running back, I was a defensive back. But my senior year, they moved me to defensive end. I was long and lanky. Uh So uh, that position actually was pretty much fun. Go get the quarterback. Yeah. Yeah, defense is always was always better than offense. Oh, yeah, I thought. Yeah, I, I'd much rather hit somebody than get hit. No question <laughs> about that. So, um, basketball, were you a guard or did you play the front court? Oh, we were forwards. You know, uh-huh. I was six two, and uh, we had another. Well, the guy that I talked about with playing football, he was the other forward. He was six three, two thirty five. So that was great. And uh, you must have beat a know, lot of teams up. Well, we had a decent year, not a great year. You know, there's always someone bigger and better, but you know what, when you're in Pennsylvania, you play multiple sports simply because of the weather, you know, when you're in Florida, you can play baseball year round outside, but here you go from football to basketball, to baseball, to summer basketball, 
to summer baseball, back to football. It's great. Right. You know, when you're when you're 15, 16 years old, what's better? Yeah. Nothing. Yep. You know, yet school, yet school's always a priority, but when you're out at classroom, you're on a ball field somewhere. Didn't matter what the weather was. Right. Now, your parents, I assume, were supportive of your your athletics. Extremely, extremely. Uh, and I come from a, you know, my dad wasn't the athlete of the family, but my uncle Ed, he was a three-year letterman, a pitcher at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, my uncle Al's kid in our high, other high school here, Freedom, was the first athlete of the year at Freedom High School in Bethlehem, PA. My, uh, I call him my uncle, but he's my cousin, Bill. He, he, he just passed away, and he was the first thousand, you know, point scorer in the Lehigh Valley here in Penn State. He's in the Moravian College Athletic Hall of Fame and played with the, the great Pete, Pete Carrill. And uh, so I come from a family of athletes that uh, maybe I got a little luck with the gene pool, David. Definitely. That's a hell of a track record. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so tell me this. Strictly, you know, talking about high school. And limiting it to, to baseball, because again, that's where, where you really flourished. Did you play against guys who went on to pro ball or college ball? Well, in, in football, yeah. Baseball, not so much. You know, we're talking 50 years ago, oh, David. Yeah, you yeah. know, the, the sports scene back then compared to now is quite different. You know, in football, Tommy Donches was a senior when I was um, – a junior, he went on to Penn State and played a little bit for the Bears and um, I believe the Buffalo Bills. So you were around these these athletes. Uh, Chris Barr, you know, longtime NFL kicker, was at Neshemini and kicked off to us. Well, you know, in those days you couldn't return them if you kicked, you know, they kicked it in the end zone. Yeah. And so you, you were around really good athletes the entire time. The exposure was different because uh, – you know, we didn't even have fax machines back then. So I don't even know how we got seen, but, you know, you enjoyed every minute of it. Hell, it was a highlight. Back then, they barely had the post office, Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> Pony Express, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So you graduated high school, and I assume Penn State was not the only school that recruited you for baseball. Well, basic, baseball, they didn't recruit. Football recruited. You got more exposure. But, David, I went to Fort Union Military Academy the year after high school. Right. And for my senior year in high school, for my entire football season, I was 16. I turned 17 that December. Right. So, you know, you talk about 16 as a senior football player. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're, you're underdeveloped. You're young. Yep. You know, school was average. So I went to prep school. And then uh, at Fort Union, I thought that was the greatest uh, place in the world. But for the right people, it is. And it was a wonderful education. But how did that happen? How, every did, day. how did you wind up leaving your home and, and going to the prep school? Well, Bob Buffman, my head coach, used to be head football coach there. Right. And being young and being an average student, everybody thought it was in my best interest to take a year off and go to the prep school. So I played football and I played baseball there. Right. I still I signed with West Virginia, with Bobby Bowden was the head coach there. Wow. And I broke my thumb in an all-star football game. My dad said, maybe you start thinking about baseball, not football. Because baseball wasn't, you know, it's not like today. 
you know, with Mike Trout here in New Jersey, you know, you have much more exposure. And so I went that route and I got drafted in high school by the Tigers and the Tiger scout called Chuck Miller at Penn State. And that's how things worked out for baseball there. Oh. But I busted my thumb really right thumb? bad. Enough. The right thumb, absolutely. Okay. My, my pop goes, maybe you ought to think twice about this football stuff because, you know, David, everybody's bigger, stronger, faster. Always. Unless you're, you're you know, who's the best in the NFL? There's always someone bigger, stronger, faster. And Without a doubt. My, my, my longevity would be in baseball, and that's how I ended up at Penn State. Joe Holden, my scout with the Tigers. I didn't sign with that big bonus of 3000 and then thought that if I got my education paid for, you know, my dad had an eighth grade education. My mom graduated high school. Um, you know, education back then were – with my dad's age, man, the, the depression, you know, he was born in 1922. So you had to work. Yeah. But he was smart enough to know 3000 was enough and a full ride for college was pretty darn good. So that's how all that materialized. It, it's funny how it all works out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, you mentioned bigger, stronger, faster, even when, yeah. you're, even when you're big, strong and fast, you're, when you're playing football, you're still getting beat up. I'll tell you a quick story. One of my cousins uh, was an attorney, and the firm that he, he worked for a big firm that represented a healthcare company out in California. And Deacon Jones, the former defensive end for oh, the yeah. LA Rams, did PR for them. And I was in LA one time, and I was visiting my cousin, and he said, Hey, Deacon Jones is here today. Would you like to meet him? I'd always been a Rams fan, even though I'd grown up in South Florida. Go figure. Couldn't have been a team further away at that point. And I said, yeah, hell, hell yeah, I'd like to meet Deacon Jones. So Deacon, he calls the, on the phone and Deacon comes in. Well, first of all, he fills up the entire doorway. Um, and I walk over to uh, shake his hand and he walks over to me limping badly. And then I go to shake his hand and he said, easy. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, my hand. And he, he showed me his hand. Literally every finger went in a different direction. Yeah, so, you know, didn't get any bigger, stronger, faster than Deacon Jones, and here's a guy who oh. still wasn't walking well, couldn't shake hands, and and you know, no doubt had a whole lot of other injuries that uh, plagued him as well. So you definitely made the right decision, and you <laughs> happened to play at a Penn State team that was pretty damn good as well, right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah, guys we went got to the to college, that college World Series, right? You know, freshman year, but again, the um, you know, it wasn't the same as it is now. Yeah, like eight area regions and we had to beat Temple, Seton Hall and Buffalo and we did to go to the College World Series. Today, you know, the fourth seed in the West out in California or Texas, they could come out east and, you know, they're really good. And so we got to the College World Series, which I'm proud of, but more than likely we would not have uh, if if you're in 2023 with no disrespect to anybody. But the, the, the College World Series is a different format. But we did go. We played 56-6 and six Arizona State. We were at 19-5. and five. And uh, we walk into we, – we have the night game, David. I think it was 7, 8 o'clock, but we get to Rosenblatt Stadium. And I think, oh, my God, it, it's Minnesota and Oklahoma. Dave and Winfield and Jackson Todd. Yeah. I never saw anybody throw as hard as big Dave Winfield. And he was really, really good. And you had to wonder, like, he just went right to hit. Now, I don't know him. I do. Everybody knows who he is. Right. So I know. 
And I'm thinking, I'm not that good. Everybody's bigger, faster, stronger, <laughs> smarter. He struck out 17 that day. Jackson Todd was a really good college pitcher back then. Yep. So to beat him, and I thought, oh my God, how am I gonna, how am I gonna do this with Arizona State 56 and six? They held out Eddie Bain, one of the most prolific college pitchers in history. He was 16 and one, and we faced 15 and one Jim Otten. We got beat three to one. I lasted eight and a third innings, and I thought, oh my God, this was a one heck of experience. And years later, I played with Eddie and Jim in Des Moines, Iowa. Yep. You know, when Mike Coburn was the, the catcher, that introduced me to you. Yep. Um, uh, I played with both of those guys, yep. but they saved Eddie Bain for Jim, and Jim was fifteen and one. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. I was I was six and six and one. He was fifteen and one. Well, yeah. As our record. Yeah. And <laughs> and that fifty six and six team, I had gone out for the team that year, and I knew I wasn't going to make it. For me, it was like a fantasy camp that I didn't have to pay for, but I made it up to the next to the last cut. So that's the Who one. Knows? That's the one way I will pat myself on the back for for any sort of athletic accomplishment because that was a hell of a team, well, a lot of talent. That was there. a really really good team and a lot of big leaguers that played on that team oh and, yeah uh, it well, was uh special i never thought getting beat was an honor but getting beat three to one and last and eight and a third as a freshman i thought well that, that's pretty good <laughs> well i'll tell you what i i think they could have taken that team into a minor league uh and competed very well i would say up to at least the double a level there was so much yeah on that yeah team. Uh, you know what a lot of those teams i mean same with i think southern cal won it all oh, that yeah. year yep dave winfield was the mvp yep you know keith moreland and bob shirley bob shirley one hit us the next day you know and we were out of the tournament oklahoma beat us <clears> six nothing i ended up playing with bob shirley up in a uh anchorage alaska right oh uh that the summer of 74 but what great exposure, you well, know, and holy cow. That L that that SC team, I mean, they had Freddie Lynn, Rich Dower, Roy Smalley, God, who else was and and the pitchers on that team. Uh was Busby on the team that year or had he graduated already? I wasn't sure. How about Randy Scarberry? Yep, Scarberry, I mean, Busby. Scarberry was on my the, the my, my Des Moines sec, you know, and right. sec Taylor with right. uh, but at some point Randy Scarberry, Eddie Bain and Jim Otten were on the team in with Alaska. My oh, team. oh, in Iowa, yeah. Well, in they also Iowa. had Pete Redfern on that SC team who pitched yeah. in the big leagues. I mean, the the talent was just unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. That was yeah. that was a vintage year for college baseball. So, <laughs> so eventually, you uh, you get drafted by the White Sox, and yes, they offered you an enormous signing bonus. I'm assuming. Well, it'd been, it would be enormous today, about $2.6 Back there, it was seventeen five in my last year at Penn State. So, you know, that enormous bonus was like, wow. Yeah. Well, so get for a, I think I was 34th pick overall. So, you know, today it's like 2.65. I don't know. It's a uh, yeah, different day and age. Good for the kids today. Well, back then there, there were – look, I, I recruited the uh, Cubs' number one pick – in 1975, a guy by the name of Brian Rosansky, they signed him. Oh for, yeah, they yeah. signed him for 40 grand. The number. Yeah, I wonder what Harold. They said like Harold Baines. You know, he was the number one pick for the White Sox shortly after. I think you know the rumor was that uh, Bill Beck signed uh, Harold, who is in the Hall of Fame now. Yeah, uh, 40 grand as well. Yeah, a left-handed hitting high school 
outfielder from St. Michael's, Maryland. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a, a different world back then. I mean, when I first got into the agent business, I can remember clearly calling players up that were first-round draft choice prospects, second-round draft choice prospects. They were afraid to even talk to me because they were they were afraid that if it got back to the team that they were talking to an agent, that the team yeah. wouldn't draft them. You know what, David, too, I don't know how it is today in a sense, but you know, I was honored to get drafted. I got drafted fairly high. I wanted to go out and play. You know, I never thought about, well, if I don't get, you know, 5,000 more, I was going back for my senior year. That wasn't the case. The case was, give me the best you can. I'm ready to go and, you know, and take my uh, take my chances. It didn't work out as well as I would have liked. But you know what? In the end, it was it was okay. So you weren't going to hold out for life-changing money as the, uh, the no, time goes right. these days. No, right. You know, like I said, when I got drafted in high school, you know, a couple of years earlier, it was 3000 And, you know, I got my college education. Yeah. So when I did sign and I went from the – my first year, I went from the Rookie League, the Gulf Coast League, right to AAA, six weeks. I was writing dear mom letters, mom, I can't believe how hard they hit the ball here. My, and that was our home, you know, Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, Tony LaRusso was a, a player on our team. Pete Vukovic, former Cy Young Award winner, came back, you know, from uh, the big leagues. Uh, Billy Parsons, I think, was the rookie of the year. Chet Lemon was a third baseman on the team. Larry Doby Johnson, Lamar Johnson, Manny you can remember it like yesterday. I was I was like awestruck. Yeah, and then uh, I didn't do well. Went to Double A, and uh, you know I got back eventually to Triple A. But I, I was a good amateur, and it was uh, a challenge in in pro baseball. It really was. So you played how many years before you decided six, that uh, six management? years, and then Dave Dombrowski, that March of '81, um, they're going to release me and offered me a coaching job in the same conversation, which, you know, I just got married in January of 81. This is March of 81, you know, teaching jobs, which I was saying that I did go back my first two years of pro ball because Bill Vec didn't have money. We didn't have instructional league. And I did go back and best thing I did, I got my degree at Penn state because without it, I couldn't have been doing what I was doing in the front office without it for all those years. So uh, that worked out well. But uh, Dombrowski offered me that coaching position in the same breath with being released. And I've been in it since April 1981 and 2023. It's a long journey, David. It is. It is. So you're a lifer. You are a lifer. No question yeah, about that. Yeah, you have 49 that. professional seasons this year. Wow. That is great. That is that. Yeah. Uh, not many people seen can... a lot of good, seen a lot of good athletes, a lot of good people. You know, it's a, it's a, the, the older I get in it, the harder the game is it really is a, a hard game. Someone throwing a, a hundred miles at you and it moves and you have to hit it. And uh, it's just not that easy as all the fans think, but the good ones can do it. And we try to get the, you know, everybody to reach their full potential. We can do that. And in player development, we're, we're happy. Right, right. Well, um, once again, I'm talking with Mitch Lukovics, the special assistant to the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays. And um, Mitch, tell me this. You were a coach for how many seasons before you went into the front office? Well, let me see here. 
I think six years I coach. Okay. I was in three years with uh, in the golf extended from the Gulf Coast League, and then no oh, five years, and then two in two in a ball in Appleton was taught. Appleton, Wisconsin, and we all got fired. It was uh, 85. We all got fired. I was instructionally pitching coach, and, you know, I'm out of a job. I'm thinking, oh, my God, now what am I going to do? You know, and Roland tried Roland Heeman, the, the great general manager of the White Sox, and one of the best human beings on the face of the planet trying to get a job, and he's falling short. Instructionally, he went late, like in November. So you're out of a job. There was a regime change, and Hawk Harrelson came in and had um, Alvin Dark come in as his farm director, the, you know, longtime San Francisco giant manager. And they fired all of us. We were out of a job. And then all of a sudden, Steve Novarita calls me. He was my pitcher in the Gulf Coast. He was in the office. He said, what do you think about the office? I said, you can I got a, you know, a wife two kids and a mortgage and I'm out of, I'm out of a job. So I went in the interview with Howard Pizer. I got the job before you know it. I'm in, thank God my father had eighth grade education proved out to be like he would, he had a PhD, you know, yeah. better go to school, you know, that, that, that. And before you know it, I'm doing workers comp. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing immigration. I'm doing budgets. I'm doing expenses, you know, scouting, player development. I'm ordering equipment, medical supplies. And, you know, the 11 years as a player and and uh, certainly a, a coach on the field helped assist that. And and basically, you know, common sense and logic. I wasn't involved with player movement or anything like that. It was pure administration. So I learned that end of the business as well. And, uh I got lucky. You know, I'm out of work. I was going to look for a teaching job. There are no teaching jobs. And again, I'm in it. 49 years. I so, got lucky. So that was you your luck sometimes, David. That was your graduate school. Yes. What was yes. your first title? I think I was minor league administrator. Minor league administrator. Okay. Yeah, and I all did right. it all. I did it all. You know, and then I had to do the budget. You know, oh my God, I had to do like a 450 pages, some assumption sheets and then you had to meet across Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn our owner, owners and you had to do a first draft second draft a final draft I was nervous as hell I never did a budget thank god the budgets you don't have to have geometry you don't have to have extensive math you have to be able to add 300 baseballs times 30 dozen equals you got 400 line items add them correctly but you had to turn the page, every assumption sheet, which had to be over 400, you had to talk to the owners about it. I was scared to death. Really? So you were presenting to Einhorn and Reinsdorf? Right across the table. What was that like? You had three books. Nerve-wracking. <laughs> you know, and, and I knew Jerry a little bit. I mean, he always wanted you to call Jerry because I was a player, so... You know, I got to know him a little bit, but still, oh, you're talking intimidating. The owner of the Chicago White Sox, Eddie Einhorn, owner, very nerve-wracking because I had to do it three times, first draft, second draft, final draft. And they knew everything, what you were spending, how you were spending it, why, you know, why you were spending it. Yeah, it was, it was quite the education. And uh, 
which, you know, we all learn in every business that we're in, whatever we do, we learn and we grow. And, and, and that was um, certainly nerve wracking, but really well worth the experience for me. Well, you had some pretty good professors between Roland Heeman and Einhorn yes. and Reinsdorf. You had some pretty good professors to learn from. Yeah. Yeah. And then I played for Tony LaRusso three years. So he's a Hall of Famer. I always laughed. I played with a Hall of Famer with Harold Baines, you know, and I played for, a, I played with Harold Baines. I played for Tony. And of course, during my Yankee years, at you know, Mariano Rivera and, and Derek Jeter. So Well, we got to get to that in a second. But I know, I know. I'm not trying to get ahead of anything, but, but, but no, I'm no, just no. saying let, how lucky I am. I understand, really. but let's not uh, miss out on giving you some credit that, yes, you had <laughs> some pretty good professors, but you also had to have been a pretty damn good student as well, because well, I'm sure that there were other people that were there at the same time who didn't wind up as a special assistant to a general manager of a very successful ball club as well. So let's let's give you a, at least a small pat on the back as well, Vince. I like small. Small okay. is good because you surround yourself with good people and all collectively is why they call it a team. Right. Collectively together, you do some good stuff, David. Right, right. So you started off in administration with the White Sox and – that was for how many years before you became? Three years. Three, three years. years. Okay. And then from there, you went to what position? I went to the Yankees from there. Now, the, you know, director of minor league operations. But my first, you know, three years was all administration. George Bradley hired me, who was a scout for us with the White Sox. He went over there as vice president of player development and scouting. And basically, I did all administration you know, certainly to go with another club, you got to get a better title. You got to get a better, a better salary with all that worked out. And then yeah, George, uh, I can't recall, may George Bradley rest in peace. He was another fine man. And uh, I, I don't know if he resigned or he got fired, but either or. And then Bill Livesey and Brian Sabian came in my life. And, and that was awesome from a player evaluation learning more baseball than than paper but george bob bradley to get back he was a, he was the man that brought me over what was and, that know, year what was the first year with the yankees 1989 89 okay yeah so i was with the white sox from 75 through through the season of 88 and 89 comes on with the yankees but George brings me over there and I'm basically in administration and I screwed up something. George, George, I got to tell you, I, I screwed this up, you know, and you can tell he was on the phone, Mr. Steinbrenner, because his hair was messy. You know, he's probably in his head. His hair's like, uh, you know, Doc Brown. And, uh, and I go, George, I really screwed this up. And he goes to me, is it solvable? I said, absolutely. It's solvable. He said, go out there and solve it. Talk to you later. And I use that all the time. When I was farm director, I used it all the time. Never panic. You know, a hot, hot knife through butter. Nice and easy. Never scream, never yell. And I use it. I use it. I've used it a lot in my lifetime. You learn from everybody, David, you know. And, and I'll never forget George Bradley for that. He's not there anymore. And I'm with Brian Sabian. And I'm with George Bradley. I'm with Brian Sabian and Bill Livesey. My whole world changed. It went from administration to player evaluation. Then I become the farm director, and Bill Livesey was my mentor. 
and player evaluation, process, procedure, profile, changed my whole game around from what I thought I knew and found out how much I really didn't know to take this, that Yankee experience to another level and then get to another organization, Tampa Bay Devil Rays, and then Rays uh, with that experience to parlay that into a, a long career. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Livesey and Sabian, um, both, <laughs> like yourself, baseball lifers with outstanding reputations who had been in many, many different roles. I mean, Sabian, uh, when I first met Brian, he was a general manager of the Giants. That was my first That's contact right. with him. And he wasn't there by accident. Brian Sabian was a very, very sharp person. He didn't miss very much. So once again, it seemed that uh, now you're getting your PhD. You, you first got your, your master's. You got your master's yeah. with Professor Heeman and Professor uh, Dombrowski and Professor LaRussa. Now you're getting yes. your PhD from Professors Sabian and Livesey and Bradley. And um, you're, you're going into a different phase of your career, as you say, evaluating players. Night and day different, David. You know, it's interesting. That's, you know, in baseball, we have 30 teams, but they go about their business 30 different ways. Yeah. You know, leadership, this guy's different from that guy. This guy believes in this. That guy believes in that. You know, everybody thinks it's the same, but it's not the same. And you can see it. Who's involved? The ownership's involved or not involved. And let me tell you, the key to everything is a great owner. And that's what we have with the double race. And then the race here with Mr. Stuart Sternberg. And without that, it's a hard challenge. It really is. Well, and and you had experience of going from the White Sox, who, as you yes. said, Bill Veck was, let's be generous and say he operated on a shoestring. And, yes. and you went from there to the Yankees, where uh, money, to a great extent, was no object. And particularly back then, this was when free agency had just started in 74, and Steinbrenner realized that the way for him to have the great equalizer was to use his pocketbook and buy players that maybe the, the minor league system wasn't quite developing yet. But Correct. you were involved back then of changing that around. So yes. 89, 90, 91, I'm assuming you saw a tremendous change in the players that were coming through that system, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and then, you know, with Bill Lizzie taking over, Brian, like you said, left to, to go to San Francisco with Bob Quinn and then later took over for Bob Quinn. Right. And then Bill Bill was the man in charge of player development and scouting. We were in Tampa. Gene Michael was up in New York in Yankee Stadium during those years. But that whole thing changed because Bill was over scouting, Bill was over player development, and um, he, tied the, he tied both of those departments together. We got the right raw resource. We had a plan on how we wanted to de develop these players. And before you know it, you know, my goodness, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera. You know, we had Bernie was in the system. Brad Osmus was in the system a year. But we got Andy Pettit. We had uh, Russ Davis from Hueytown, Alabama. And I could go on and on and oh, on. Yeah. Paul O'Neill, Tell you Posada. about how those trades for Joe Girardi and Tino Martinez and Paul. Paul O'Neill, but Bill Lizzie had a plan and a process behind everything. And uh, yeah, they, they've written books about it, actually. Yeah, literally. And, and so I, uh, I was lucky to be a part of that, to learn that. And then come to the Rays, which 
you know, after we all got fired by Mr. Steinbrenner, me, Bill, Kevin Elfring was our coordinator of scouting. We got fired. Uh, Buck Showalter and I come to the Rays and I, I had the choice of being a Gulf Coast League pitching coach or joined Brian Sabian as a special assistant out there. And I took the pitching coach position because of I wanted to be around home more. And uh, I think it was the best decision I made. I didn't take the money. I didn't follow the money. I didn't follow the title. I got back to grassroots baseball. My kill with Dan Jennings was in the front office and scouting. Bill Livesey was over there. And that's how I got to the Devil Rays. And then after the first year, because we had a team in the Gulf Coast League, the Devil Rays, Tom Foley and Dennis Rasmussen led it with Howard Johnson. Hojo led a team in Butte, Montana. And then they added, because we were expansion, Dave, they added two more teams. At that time, they got me out of coaching and asked me, you know, would you want to come into the office? And of course, you know what? You know, hey, you want salami, you get salami, no problem. <laughs> and Michael Hill, who was in administration, you know, and he's done a nice job with Colorado and certainly the Marlins, who was a GM and now he's in the commissioner's office. He went solely for scouting. I was solely in player development and did that till 2006. So it was almost 10 years between being a farm director and getting my second chance of being a farm director um, with the race and under new ownership with, with Mr. Sternberg and Matt Silverman and Andrew Friedman. So, well, that was, that was what changed the Rays from a, a horrible team to the consistent player factory that they have yeah. become. And, and that's one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about. What does it take, in your opinion, um, because the Rays have never had a big budget to operate no. with, but yet they have consistently done as good, if not a better job, of developing players than any team in baseball. And they've taken assets they had as players that, that for whatever reason, they evaluated were not long-term solutions and turned them into long-term solutions by trading them to other teams that had placed a higher value on them. What was the, the key difference, let's say, between the way the Yankees evaluated and developed players and the way that the Rays evaluated and developed players? Because, again, if you look at those two organizations yeah. and, and the success that the Rays have had with a very limited budget versus the, the Yankees, let's call it lack of success with pretty much unlimited budget, it's night and day. So, David, if you're asking about the development part of it, there wasn't much difference between what we did with the Yankees and then when I took over as farm director because I, I learned what worked. And then I brought it to the Rays about process, procedure, and having experience as a player and having experience as a coach. How do you treat people? Now, the evaluation of players and obtaining players, it's night and day different where you know, they did with the Yankees go out and buy players, and they still do. Right. Uh, with the Rays, it's really terrific evaluation on what we do and how we value players and assess the valuation of a player and all players. And, and that changed considerably when we became the Rays under Mr. Sternberg, Matt Silverman, and Andrew Freeman, certainly now Eric Neander how you value players 
And, and that is significantly different. But how we develop players on the field and what's important, what's not important, um, wasn't much difference, actually, because, really? you know, if it wasn't broke, why, why I, this is what I learned, you know, and over the years you learn what you did not want to do. I just know in, in the minor league system, you know, you have to have a lot of patience and there's a lot of failure. And, you know, we, in the minor leagues, you have the potential to perform, but in the big leagues, you have to perform. And what happened when Mr. Sternberg came into this here with Andrew was no wine is fine before his time. So we're in the devil rays, you know, we weren't doing too well. And, you know, we had to, we had to rush players in my mind a little bit faster than what you should under the new administration. No wine is fine before his time. We were to take our time. Now, obviously there's outliers with Evan Longoria. There's, you know, David Price, but you look at James Shields, Matt Moore, Matt Moore repeated in, in Princeton in low A twice. You look at Alex Cobb, who pitched in the All-Star game this year. You look at their journeys, and then you look at Wade Davis, and then you look at Andy Pettit. You know, they had similar track records. You look at Derek Jeter and how he went through the farm system, and then what we did, we kind of, uh, you know, mimicked that type of stuff where no no wine is fine before it's time. We it, It's like this, David. You know, the geniuses maybe can go from first to fifth grade, fifth grade to 12th grade. But most of us got to go from first to second to third to fourth. Well, OK, you do have outliers. Wonder Franco's an outlier. Delman Young was an outlier. Man, when he came to us, he was the number one, number one pick in the draft. Signed a major league contract. He went to low A. Uh, Charleston, eh, he only hit 25 home runs, 116 RBIs, and it over 300, who hits 100 RBIs these days in the minor leagues? And one team, well, you know, today you play a half a year, you do good, you move to another level, you do good, move to another level. But, you know, we, we were lucky back then that our ownership was behind what we did, and, and that's everything. Because if you don't have that, you're going to panic, you're forced to do things you really do not want to do, David. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and you mentioned the difference between now and, and then. And one of the things that blows my mind, back when I first got into the agent business, I had some clients that were pretty damn good players uh, in AAA and couldn't sniff the big leagues. In particular, yeah. I represented a player by the name of Skip James. Skip had come out of uh, the University of Kansas. He was a first baseman, but he could also play the outfield. And Skip had at least two years in a row where he hit over 300 in the Pacific Coast League. Didn't have great power, but he was a very good defensive first baseman and hit over 300. Couldn't sniff the big league. Couldn't even sniff the big league roster. Then a third year, he was back in AAA, and uh, he was doing really well. And I think what finally made it possible for him to get to the big leagues was he there was an injury at the big league level. Had it not been for that, he'd have been in triple a again now you got guys that are being called up from triple a hitting 255 and the the press can't stop talking about what a good hitter they are and that just to me is is mind-blowing now i'm sure analytics possibly plays a significant role in that 
evaluation of that 255 hitter and they look at his exit velocities and his launch angles and things like that and say, well, he's got the capability to take that to the big leagues. And, and if he can replicate that performance, he'll be successful in the big leagues. But that versus a track record of a guy consistently being successful in the minor leagues, I, I mean, to me, it just seems like the, the balance has kind of gone out of whack. So, well, um, I can add this to that, David, to add on to what you're saying. Matchups have everything to do with it, too. You know, you could be performing very well at the AAA level, but if you're not the right matchup, you know, for that big league team, whether you're right-handed hitter, left-handed hitter, same thing with pitching, right-handed or left-handed, you might be doing better, but the other player's going to get called up because we're so in the matchups today. And the game has changed, and, you know, it is what it is. It's not like, okay, the best guy in AAA, he has a 1.2 ERA. They got more statistics, uh, underlying stats, they call them. That 1.25 ERA might not be the same. You might not get called up. Someone could have a 4 ERA and, okay, underlying statistics. But because if he's a left-handed pitcher and you're facing – maybe a predominantly left-handed big league team, you're going to get called up. That's how the game is, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But let me tell you, it's so different from years ago. The best guy would get called up yeah. and uh, or the best-performing guy. That's how, how it is. Yeah, well, that everybody was, knows it, David. That, everybody knows it. That was when you had a lot of major league teams relying on the sporting news stats in order to figure out who was coming up because the they they weren't the the sophistication level wasn't much beyond that we we know everything about everybody we know every pitch where it's located by every umpire you know we have a lot of a lot of data today and you know the the the, the use of all this good data and and the human eye coming together is the perfect plan can't have one you can't have the other uh and but when you get both that is where you can have success yeah yeah true very true so tell me this i had many clients that always complained about this other guy got called up instead of me and the reason he got called up instead of me was because he got a bigger bonus to sign how much of a factor from from the perspective of player development and administration how much of a factor was that in terms of who you recommended as far as getting called up? My impression from people I've spoken to in that position was once a guy signed, we didn't care what he signed for. All we looked at is what he had done since he walked in the door. That's absolutely right. The bonus never came into play. And I can tell you, Kirby H is pitching for Atlanta now. Mike Brousseau, I think he just got released, but hit one of our biggest home runs against Chapman, you know, against the Yankees and uh, Elliot Johnson are three players that we signed were non-drafted players. Um, we've had Travis Phelps here, 83rd round when the draft was hundred, they all play in the big leagues. Now, what would I think bonus money might help a little bit more? You might get a little longer shake, you know, you might get a little more benefit of the doubt, but when it comes to getting to the big leagues and even moving up, you don't think about it because I think you can put them in wrong predicaments. And with those wrong predicaments, that player could get hurt. I think you got to be fair to, to players and the players all see it, but well, okay, David got that big bonus. We're going to move my, I don't, 
But with my three organizations, I really have not seen that. I mean, my goodness, Derek Jeter on the last game of the Gulf Coast League, he was batting 190-something. He got two hits to get over the Mendoza line. You know, okay, we did move him. He had 56 errors in the next year. But the following year, we looked at skill. We just looked at pure skill. We looked at age. Well, okay, let's move because he was the number one pick. He had skill, and, you know, the rest is history. And there are some guys that might be more now players. They might be ahead of their league because they're a college player, and maybe we wouldn't move them as much, but the Mikey Brousseau's got moved, the Kirby Yates, and they weren't even drafted. So I don't know. I don't think there's that perfect formula of moving players. So you got to be flexible. You got to be flexible. You can't, That's a good word. Be flexible. You can't just have a cookie cutter, so to speak, and say no. that if you don't fit that mold, you're not moving. Right. No, I agree with that. So that Gulf Coast League team and, and the Instructional League team that Jeter was on, I had a client on that team, Ray Suplee, and Oh, yeah, from Sarasota. Exactly. And there was just a tremendous amount of talent there. There was there was Suplee, there was Jeter, obviously not on a par, but nonetheless, I think Ray was like a fourth-round pick out of high school. There was Posada, there was O'Neill, there was Rivera. Was that one of the more talented groups that you saw in your tenure with the Yankees? Uh, absolutely. You know, because we were, you know, when I got there, the Yankees were not a good team. We had Brian Taylor, number one, number one pick. Right. You know, that, that's not a a great place to be when you have the number one, number one pick that just tells you had a lousy year the year before. And, and the Yankees were, were not good, but over time, you know, Brian Taylor, who, you know, we all know his story. He, he was going to lead the charge on the mound with Jeter at shortstop, but it's so much talent around those guys, whether it was Bernie Williams, you know, uh, my God, Brad Osmus was taken in the 35th round. Great athlete, couldn't hit a basketball with a boat or kind of learned how to do it. And he ended up 18 years in the big leagues. We took Russ Springer on a flyer. He was hurt. Would have been a number one pick, but he was hurt. We took him in the eighth round or something like that. And and my boss, Bill Lives, he goes, you know, we're going to challenge our medical team. We're going to challenge them. Then we're going to challenge our, you know, our pitching coaches. And he ended up spending eight years yeah. in the big leagues. Yep. But a lot of talent, a lot of getting the right raw resource, player to, from the scouts, player development, people doing what they needed to do to where, you know, you, you, you keep your crops like Jared, like Jeter, Posada, Pettit, Mariano, and you take some to, to the market to trade to get um, Tino Martinez, Joe Girardi, Paul O'Neill, um, David Cohn. We traded a non-drafted free agent, a 13, I think a 12, 13, 13, 14, 3 for David Cohn. was a perennial all-star. We traded, uh, uh, converted, Bill Livesey converted Mike Dijon from a shortstop to a pitcher. And he went in a trade with, um, I think, Steve Shoemaker, a fourth-round pick to get Joe Girardi. So, you know, there's a process behind this. You know, you trade Chris Archer, you get glass now, you get, you know, Shane Boz and and uh, geez, the, the name eludes me now. And it was a good inf- a good outfield for us. We traded to Detroit and I can picture his face. I just the name eludes me. So, you know, Austin you, Meadows. 
That's it. Yeah, what a wonderful young kid. And um, thank you, David. And so with that, you know, you keep the crops you want. You take the ones you want to trade. Might be good for another team, you know, and, and we all benefit. So you, you mentioned yes. Bernie Williams. You mentioned Bernie Williams. And, and I recruited Bernie. Uh, Bernie was in um, the Florida State League when I met him. And yeah. got together with him in Orlando, actually. Um, the Yankees team were playing there. And how nice a guy was he? Great. I mean, you know what? And you know what? Bernie Williams could, he, he ran like a deer. You know, those strides were so long. He did it so effortless. But I can say the guys that I mentioned, whether they, you know, the Yankees and all those young men that, that I mentioned, and all the young men that I mentioned with the double raise and raise, every one of them, they're as good of a, a person that you want to meet. They were better. I always said Derek Jeter was a better person than a player. He's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He's a Hall of Fame person. Well, I mean, Evan, David Price, you name it. They were really good people. They all really worked. Very rare to find players that are just not nice and don't work, be successful, David. Well, to, a, there's a, a correlation there, really. Well, to me, character was always what separated the men from the boys. Because Absolutely. eventually, if a guy's a good player, he's going to get to the point where he's having so much smoke blown up his ass. Um, people telling him how great he is and, and, you know, women throwing themselves at him and money now comes yeah, into the equation yeah. when they get to the big leagues. If it's not a high character individual, sooner or later, that is going to have a corrosive effect on, on their personality. And there's no way that that can't translate to, to how they play on the field as well. So it, I agree. And, and the guys that I seen that you're talking about, really don't make it to the big leagues or there are few at least what i'm talking from my experiences from the white Sox, my former teammates you know uh, some of the guys i coach like bobby Thigpen. you know my goodness what a stud what a stud human being and all the guys from the yankees to the white Sox. you know yankees have this mystique about them being a little pompous and they're the yankees i can tell you none of those players acted like that they were good people. They were good baseball players. And every one that I mentioned to them, you know, I can I can mention a thousand of them. You know, B.J. Upton, Carl Crawford, Josh, you know, Josh Hamilton was a fabulous, gifted athlete. He just ran a little bit astray. But my memory, he was a league MVP. He was fabulous. And he wasn't, like, as a teammate, a bad person. He just... You know, we're all born different, David. We mm -hmm. all, and I'm not trying to pick on, on Josh Hamilton. We're all born different, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Part of what we do in player development is to get them in line with what we do. So they're, they're a teammate. They, they understand what a teammate is. And when they get to Kevin Cash, you know, they know how to behave so we can function as a team and we can, bottom line, win games. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Now, we've talked about money a little bit. I'd like to talk about it a little bit more in terms of the way that it has changed the game now versus oh. the way it was years ago. Uh, when, when you and I first got into the game, first of all, the media coverage was not what it is now. There were, back then, generally, even at the big league level, there were 
even in even in towns like New York, Chicago, or L.A., there were two or three newspapers that covered the team, and that was it. Now you've got those same two or three newspapers at least, and you've got 25 websites that cover the the, the team. So everything is magnified tremendously. Yes. And and in terms of TV, back then again, you had one game of the week on Saturdays, and that was about. Yeah, with Tony, Tony Kubek and uh, Kurt uh, Gowdy. No, Garagiola. Or, or Kurt Gowdy. And Kurt Gowdy. Right, right. Yeah. So now you've got every game on every day for every team on MLB ticket. And as a result of that, things are much bigger. And I'm using bigger in air quotes here. Um, what effect do you see ha that having in terms of the, the effect, if you will, on the individual players? Because yes, the, the guys are making more money that the teams are making more money, but in terms of the overall effect that the money created by that me media focus, the effect that that has on the individual players. I, I don't see a lot like it affects players. I think what comes down to it, David, players have to get on that mound, whether they make 30 million or a million or league minimum. Players do not like to get embarrassed. They take their, 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 their pride, they did their pride in their, in, in what they do as a profession, you know, nobody wants to get embarrassed. So they, they take, you know, give or take, we're all different, but they take the craft pretty darn serious where the money comes in now is in the minor leagues where my goodness, the pay is better. The housing, you know, is better. The food significantly better. Everything is significantly better in the minor leagues. Does it change anybody? No, but it's, it's long overdue and we're happy it is, you know, not 70, 1978 style. But when you come to the big leagues and, and even the minor leagues, everybody wants to work. Everybody wants to play, give or take individuals. But my goodness gracious, no one wants to perform and not perform well, even if they're making 30 million a year. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to not perform in Philly. <laughs> or New York. True. And if you don't perform, you know, boy, oh boy, it's a, it's a tough go. So they they all, you know, they, they, they strap it on regardless of how much money they make. Well, I had kind of a different experience in that when I first got into the agent business, money was a factor because everybody wanted to get what they could get. Right. At the end of my involvement on that side of the game as an agent, it was so much more of a factor. I had so many kids who, and, and when I say kids, I mean kids, high school kids, 16-year-old high school juniors who in effect had already picked out their place in Cooperstown where their plaque was going to go. And, um, you know, I met so many parents that, that used the term, if my kid doesn't get life-changing money, that it really, it made me want to vomit. My, my, comeback, <laughs> my yes. comeback to that in many instances was life-changing money. If your kid signs a baseball contract for $1.50, it's going to change his life. If he goes to the army, it's going to change his life. If he goes to work at a gas station, it's going to change his life. What in the fuck are you talking about life-changing money for? Uh, <laughs> parents seem to see the kids in, in one of two ways, either as a meal ticket 
or as a way to jerk off their egos, to, to be able to yeah. tell another parent that their kid played travel ball with, my son got more money than your son. Now, <laughs> you, you mentioned a player previously, Brian Taylor. And, yeah. and for the people listening who don't remember who Brian Taylor was, Brian Taylor was a, a big left-handed pitcher out of North Carolina, I believe, who threw very hard yes. and was taken with the first pick in the first round of the draft and signed a major league contract right out of high school. And the expectations for him were sky high. And part of the reason that the expectations for him were sky high were um, his family. Uh, his mother was involved in the negotiation of, negotiation of his contract. And, you know, his mother had made statements basically saying that he was going to pitch in the big leagues right away and all the rest of this stuff. And then Brian Taylor's career was essentially cratered when he got into a bar fight uh, protecting his brother. So here was a kid, and at the time, he was underage. He shouldn't have even been in a bar. And he gets into a bar fight protecting his brother. Well, you know, good for him protecting his brother, but nonetheless, uh, bad for him being in a bar fight when, you know, he shouldn't have been in a bar to begin with. But money was the big thing in terms of Brian Taylor. He signed for more money at that point than any player had in the history of the draft. And I'm just wondering if, you know, a player with that level of talent who may not have had that media spotlight on him from day one and who may not try, have tried to exploit that media spotlight from day one to the degree that he had, if things would have been you know, better for him or different. Now, it's impossible to state with any degree of certainty because you, know, you, you can't change the past, but it, it was what it was, and he was tremendously talented. Would you, would you say him as, as one of the players who you worked with in your uh, administration uh, career with the Yankees, would you say before he got hurt, he was one of the better left-handed pitchers you've ever seen? Absolutely, unequivocally, without question. And I have to say this, David, because I was in contact with someone within the last month, two months, on a story about Brian Taylor, and we all thought it was a bar fight, but it wasn't in a bar. Oh, it wasn't. The record beat corrected okay and he Please was do. Aiden's brother and the thing was it basically ripped his left arm out of the socket right and so when he signed with us he came to, he signed late he's on yep you know 60 minutes or more he's safer and all this he came to us and good well I saw his last game with Gene Michael and Brian Sabian and I thought oh my god how does he do what he does what I hear because he warms up the like like nobody I've ever seen. And then the first pitch of the game was 96. The second was 97. The third was 98 on the knees. And it was just phenomenal. Tall, lanky, 6'3", must maybe 180, I don't know, maybe 190. So now the negotiation's a little bit tougher. We end up signing him, and he comes to Instructional League, and it's like, oh, my God, he cannot hold a runner on. He doesn't know, you know, Feel the bunt. Everything other than throwing the baseball over the plate, he was not accustomed to because he struck out that many yeah. in high school that he wasn't exposed to it. So, okay, we get through that. Spring training comes, goes to Florida State League. What does he do? He leads the league in strikeouts. Now, he was an older sign. He was in like Gary Sheffield. They were 19 uh, years old as a senior sign. Um, and then he goes to double A. 
And and his numbers were not as good, but a lot of strikeouts, a little more walks. But in the Florida State League, David, you know the Florida State League. I thought he was like a rock star. Lakeland would be sold out. You know, every yeah. city would be sold out. They yeah. want to see this phenom. And I'll never forget being in New Britain, Boston, New Britain, the Yankees. He couldn't get out of the bus. They're calling him every name in the book, and they're tugging on him. And it was it was a lot for for a, a young man from New Bern, North Carolina, Beaufort, North Carolina. And I thought, oh my God! And they're all over him. He's warming up in the bullpen, like eight feet away from the bleachers. Well, his double-A year wasn't as good. And then, as we all know, the the, the fight. And um, it's really sad. When I talked to this other gentleman, you know, a month ago, I, I thought I was going to lose it because I thought Brian Taylor was just an innocent young high school kid that was gifted. He, he without, I wouldn't be Durante. It wasn't worldly, David. Right. You know, it's a little, little, and he wasn't little, but he was from this small community, a little naive, uh, very shy, and a wonderful, wonderful young man that God gave him this gift. And on one incident in life, boom, took it all away. And, and, and I think about it, I get a lump in my throat. I wanted to talk to him, you know. And uh, he, this gentleman brought up the whole history and, you know, uh, being interviewed. And uh, Brian Taylor was a wonderful young kid and with a great future and just at the wrong place at the wrong time. And life changed completely for him. Oh, yeah, in the blink of an eye. In a blink of an eye. Just devastating. It still eats me to this day. Well, a tremendously talented uh, young man. Um, yeah. Who who would you say was the best right-handed high school pitcher you've seen? Oh, my God. Well, we had a lot of them with the Rays. I mean, Wade Davis was really good. Um, Jamie Shields was really good. I'll tell you who was really good bringing up the left side was Matt Moore with uh -huh. the Rays when he you know, led all of baseball two years in a row in strikeouts. Here was an eighth-round high school pick from the hot – Bed, New Mexico, you know, the baseball hotbed in New Mexico, <laughs> he blew everybody away. Like, holy cow. But you look at, you look at Brian Taylor, you look at David Price, you look at Matt Moore. Um, Andy Pettit was good, but he wasn't in, he was a good big league pitcher. Better than Matt Moore, but the right raw resource. Matt Moore had more. Andy used it better and parlayed into an outstanding career. Same with certainly, uh, David Price, not for sadly for Brian Taylor, but right-handed pitchers. Um, Wade Davis comes to comes to my mind. Jamie Shields comes to my mind. You know, Jamie Hellickson was rookie of the year for us. Um, I had Bobby Big uh, Dick Penn when I was uh, with the White Sox, and at the time he led the American League in in saves for a couple of years. He set the the save record. Um, so, but, but more so some hitters, you know, whether it was my old roommate, Ron Kittle with the White Sox was American league rookie of the year, you know, it was like, oh my God, he's in Knoxville, Tennessee, he's hitting these balls through the warehouse windows. I'm like, this is like Babe Ruth, <laughs> you know, it's just stuff like that over the years. But, uh, and it's hard, David, you know, it's hard to single out players. 
like who was well josh hamilton phenomenal but i'm telling you i'm leaving out dozens of really good players that are not coming to my mind well, i can tell you that. the reason the reason that i was asking that question mitch was to get to this other subject and it ties back to brian taylor uh, you mentioned taylor came from a small town in north carolina and back then one of the things that did not exist that currently exists in the world that that baseball deals with is showcase baseball right kids nowadays even from a Beaufort North Carolina they get the opportunity to play against other kids that are on a par with them in terms of their abilities because you take a kid like Taylor he's pitching to you know a high school sophomore who's 15 years old who's barely strong enough to hold the bat and here's this kid throwing 97 on the black at the knees <laughs> whereas you know he throws the same pitch in a showcase tournament to one of the outstanding hitters in that class and maybe that kid at least is able to put the ball in play do you feel that that is a, an asset in terms of both scouting and player development absolutely they, they definitely come Hand in hand, David, with, with, without question. You know, it's amazing what scouts do when they look at you at seven. They look at a player at 17 and have to project, like, what are you going to be like in 21? What type of body type do you have? Well, let me tell you, it's fairly clunky now. What do you think it's going to be when you're 22 years old? Clunkier, you know, thicker. But uh, what, the, what these guys do for a living to evaluate not only the skill, the bat, the bat speed, the arm speed, the foot speed, what type of person is he? You know, it's amazing the job scouts do. I think it's just definitely the hardest job in baseball with by far. You know, I think player development can be hard at times because you're dealing with different personalities um, and you have to learn to be a teacher. You have to learn to break down a different subject and break it down so everybody could understand. You know what I'm saying? You got to, you got you, the, the players like humans, we learn at different speeds. So if you're a teacher that only teaches for one speed, you're not a very good teacher. And so between the scouting and the player development and the blending together is really, it's an art and it's, not easy to do or you would see more players in the big leagues that are coming uh, that are developed internally true true and i think it's tragic what's happened over the last 10 15 years the way that scouting staffs have been absolutely gutted uh by major league baseball teams where it used to be that you know teams had a multitude of scouts who yes. were covering virtually every part of the country. And now it's not like that so much anymore. Now you've got. I can, I can say, not to interrupt you, David, I can say for the Tampa Bay Rays, we are not in that group that we do believe in scouting. We do believe in player development. We believe not only in the amateur, you know, amateur scout, the international scout, the professional scout. When when certain organizations shut down their pro scouts and want to get it all off of video, we increased ours. We changed it. You know, our guys changed the format for all this to be more modern than when it was 30 years ago. So, and it all stems, Tony, it all stems from ownership and upper management and, and, and their vision. And 
and how they foresee the future and what they want to invest in. And I'm happy to say we're not one of those teams. And I think we have greatly benefited from those decisions. Well, and the proof of that is is what's happened on the field. Uh, again, yeah. the yep. Rays yep. have put a consistently competitive team on the field with a budget that ranks in, I'm being yeah. generous here, the bottom third of of all baseball teams. That's right. And, That's right. And nonetheless, they've been able to compete with the biggest budget teams in baseball and be very, very competitive, very competitive. And, and that, that's really... You know, Dave, it's not easy, but it's fun. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. And when 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 you beat the juggernauts at David and Goliath, I always say these teams that, that have the kind of money they have, they ought to be 160, 162 and all, and never had the luxury. And uh, But okay, what, what our guys do, you know, they, they're serious as anybody I've been around, uh, and, and they make very smart decisions, and you know, revenue is important for us because of the attendance, which has gotten a little bit better. But uh, it's it's fun when you when you beat the juggernauts. It really is. Yes, definitely. Um, well, hopefully you have your crystal ball handy for this next question. What do you see in terms of the future as being the biggest challenge and the biggest benefit coming down the road for? for Major League Baseball? Wow. The biggest challenge for Major League Baseball? I don't know. You know, they have everything. Maybe expansion. You know, is that going to go through? I know, you know, a couple teams need stadiums, and what's that going to be like? I mean, the sky's the limit. I mean, it's a big, big business. I think I, I thought I read $13 billion a year. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, they, they have everything. I mean, I'm I'm always looking because I'm minor league Mitch for, you know, to having our two teams back. Everybody knows how I feel. We lost Princeton and Hudson Valley, and it and and, and it hurts in the development stage. Like I said, you, you you do not go from first to fifth, fifth grade to to twelfth grade, and you need to have that ladder system that we do not have. And then we do not play games in the in these young levels on Wednesdays. And, uh, you know, we're spending the same amount of money. We won games. We just would move around players to get other players more of an opportunity. That would be my wish. I know you didn't ask that. Maybe no, 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 I, but you pinpointed the challenge. The challenge is adapting yeah. to the new format in the minor yeah, league. That, because it, it used you know, to be when, where every team. We all team... have to get used to it. We all have to figure it out and thrive in it. But, you know, when – the Phillies can sign Trey Turner for $300 million after they signed, uh, you know, certainly Bryce Harper for $300 million or the Mets who they since traded Scherzer and Verlander and they're making $40 million. You know, w- w- why are we on the same, you know, minor league playing, playing surface? If we wanted to have X amount of teams and, and if our owner wanted to have it, why couldn't we? But, but, you know, all of baseball complains about that, to be honest. And you know what? We just, that is a challenge. And what it is, is we have to figure it out and do better. But if I had my wish, if I can wiggle my nose, I would I would do a few things different. That's for sure. 
Well, but and it, it, I'm it, not in, I don't have that, uh, you know, I, I don't have that capability. I hear so. you. I hear you. And, and having kids that are in their second year, let's say of pro ball and their first year was basically a half a season. And now instead of playing at a level where they're, you know, with other kids similarly experienced, they're playing in leagues where they're playing against oh, yeah. kids that have had yeah. two full seasons. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and with the draft being later, okay, I recognize all those issues, but we're getting kids ten innings in their first year. You know, we're getting, you know, we we traded Kyle Manzardo to Cleveland, right? I think his first year he got fifty plate appearances. Well, Fernando Perez, his year got in Hudson Valley, I believe, two hundred and seventy-five. So the development table is is you know way different. And let me tell you. You can't rush development. Everybody grows at a different pace. And when you have the different grades, I say grades, which means levels. When you have those levels, you have a safe place to put kids in. You like, like, let, let me tell you, like I went from the Gulf Coast League to AAA. My man, Roland Heeman, I love him to death. But that was a tough go. And you put players in competition that they're, for the most part, not ready. The journey of player development is longer and there's more bumps in the road. So. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest flaws that I saw from my perspective as an agent was it seemed that baseball was afraid to let players fail, that they felt that failure would damage their confidence to a degree that it would not make it possible for them to succeed in the future. Whereas I always felt that players could learn as much from failure, if not more, than they can learn from success. Who doesn't fail in this game? You hit 300, you fail seven out of 10 times. We all fail. Baseball is a game of failure. Every yes, stat is based on failure. I don't buy that so, so, so much. We just need to put players at the right grade level for their sake. And when you put them three, three grade levels above, you know, again, for the outliers, for the Delman Youngs or the Wonder Francos or the Evan Longorias, you know, you have those outliers. But for everybody else, it's a tough, tough, you know, sled. And uh, I, I don't care for it. But we, hey, it, it, as everybody says, it is what it is. So, you know, we have to figure it out. No question That's about it. No question about it. Well, Mitch, I'll tell you, I've, I've taken a lot more of your time up today than I thought I was originally going to do. I'd love to have you back on and, and continue this conversation. And, yeah. you know, I know you have uh, a million more stories that my listeners would love to hear. I, I hope you <laughs> would agree to come back uh, sometime yeah. when, when you're not too busy scouting or, or traveling. I really appreciate it. I, I've loved catching up with you today. Mitch Lukovic, special assistant to the general manager of the Tampa Bay Rays, a baseball lifer and a major league human being. I, I'm I, uh, I, I, kind. Thank I, you. I can't thank you enough for for having been my client for a few years and having been my friend for many years. Many years, I'm, you bet. I'm, I'm a very lucky man. Very lucky man. Me too, David. Me too. Thank you for having me. 
I'd like to thank Mitch Lukovics, Special Assistant to the General Manager of the Tampa Bay Rays, for being my guest today. Thank you for listening to Follow the Moneyball. My next guest will be Greg Boris, President of PowerX Communications and former Director of Communication for the Major League Baseball Players Association. I hope you'll tune in again.